You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 30th of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme coming up. We do not seek another war. We do not seek to escalate. But we will absolutely do what is required to protect ourselves, to continue that mission, and to respond appropriately to these attacks. After three U.S. soldiers are killed by what Washington calls an attack by Iranian-sponsored militia, we explore the role of Iran in the expanding Middle East crisis. Also coming up, as Transparency International publishes its annual corruption index, we'll hear from the chair of the organisation. Plus, Boeing publishes its results today, but what must it do to secure its future after another dangerous manufacturing flaw in one of its aircraft? Also to come... The thing that we're told often by the powers that be in America, you know, who have the, hold the purse strings for films like this is that our films, films featuring black characters don't travel. We'll hear from Jeffrey Wright, star of satirical film American Fiction, nominated for five Oscars. Plus the papers too. That's all ahead on The Globalist, live from London. So a quick look at what else is happening in today's news. Israel has released a dossier claiming that up to 190 UN employees were allied to or employed by Hamas. Britain has demanded clarity over the whereabouts of a dual Russian-British man who appears to have disappeared from a Siberian prison. And the Australian Prime Minister has told neighbouring Papua New Guinea it is the security partner of choice after the Pacific Island nation said China was keen to seal its security and policing agreement. Stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, let's Let's get a look at the papers and also a sort of close look at this, this if uh, the Israeli dossier that has been released uh, with uh, Yossi Meckelberg. A very good morning to you, Yossi, a Chatham House expert and regular voice around this microphone. A very good morning to you. How's life in the Meckelberg world? Uh, quite all right. Short of a bit of a cold. Right. Okay. Lovely. <laughs> well, not lovely, but you know what I mean. Um, let's deal with this uh, coverage now about this dossier that, that that Israel has released, claiming that 190 UN employees were allied to or employed by Hamas. I mean, they're singling out names of teachers, their families, and everything, aren't they? It's 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 embarrassing for UNRWA. No 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 doubt about it. Uh, but they dealt uh, quite quickly with the issue. Uh, two of the people involved actually were killed uh, during the war. Nine of them actually been been sacked. Now, I think many people don't understand the structure of UNRWA. This organization, 75 years, looks after by now 5.7 million refugees that scattered between not only it's not only Gaza but West Bank, Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria. So civil wars in Lebanon, civil you know wars in 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 Syria, and they need to provide them with with shelter, with uh, health, with education. Now, indifferent from many other UN agency, most of the people employed by by UNRWA are actually the the, the refugees themselves. Those are Palestinians. So there are like thirty thousand Palestinians that uh, that are employed while there are around 300 internationals. So it's a very different structure. 
and they're under constant attack. They are accused of perpetuating the refugee issues, the war, and, and so on and so forth. And, and they operate after, under a tiny budget relative to the task they have of less than 1.4 billion, that every year there is a real struggle to get. Now, what happens? Among all the, the the refugees, again, because in the case of Gaza, there are people, the refugees that live in Gaza, some of them unfortunately sympathize of, of, of Hamas, and, and some of them actually, probably, according to the dossier, were actually active in 7th of October in, 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 in the terrorist attack. But all what UNRWA can do is going and, and discipline them. And that's what he did. Well, one of the issues that appears to be emerging here is that no one really knows how to deal with this because there's an article in the New York Times which very neatly lists what each country is doing. Um, UN uh, funding is being... So UNRWA funding from the United States is being suspended. Germany temporarily suspending. European Union, no plans to suspend funding. Japan suspending. Turkey expressing concern. Canada pausing additional funding. The list goes on. The list is getting longer. But it means that, A, people don't know what to do about this. But secondly, the longer that people are indecisive, Hmm. on the ground, people are really suffering. Yeah, it's it's a complete knee-jerk reaction to, to a problem, yes, it's it's as I say, it's it's embarrassing for any UN agency that some of its people are are involved in terrorist activity. But it's a tiny, it's a very small small group. Now, <laughs> more than ever, UNRWA needs the support of the international community because of the war in Gaza, because of the devastation inflicted uh, uh, by 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 Israel. <clears throat> Many of the houses have been. Destroyed. Now, the worst case scenario that UNRWA planned for before the war is 170,000 people displaced. There are more than 1 million people displaced right now, hiding in in UNRWA's uh, facilities, whether they are hospitals, uh, uh, schools. So it needs more money. Now, dealing with this issue of of, uh, terrorist activity by some members is one thing. What needs actually to, to increase the, the, the budget. Now, the other thing, if the international community that actually <laughs> renews its mandate, it's, it's the Security Council, it's the UN uh, renews the mandate every, every two years. If they're not happy with the way the UNRWA operates, let them offer an alternative. The, the worst thing is to leave these refugees. The vast majority of Gazan people are refugees. One, 1.4 million are, are refugees out of the 2.3, leave them without the aid a time of the worst humanitarian disaster in, in, in the history of Gaza. Um, and we also have the uh, UN Secretary General of the UN meeting in New York with the representatives of those donors today. Yeah. There, there will be obviously a sort of all spotlight on the UN as to whether it can actually sort this problem out. And, and, and the shoot, and that's where exactly the, uh, Mr. Guterres should put pressure on, on, the, on the member state to find a solution. If they want to do it through UNRWA, fine, they want to assess the, 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 the mandate of UNRWA is one thing, but the most important thing is more humanitarian aid will get in, into Gaza. Now, there are ways to deal with also the, the issue of UNRWA, but uh, when there is peace one day, this is actually can be the backbone when it comes to education, when it comes to health, when it comes to social services, <clears throat> exactly the backbone of a ad- Palestinian administration in Gaza. So to try now to break 
this organization will come with a heavy, heavy price. Let's move on to another story that um, is connected to the to the wider issue mm. here, and we'll be talking about Iran a little bit, a little bit later on the program. But um, following this drone attack on this uh, on Tower Twenty Two, this base on the Jordanian Syrian border, um, a spotlight has understandably been shown shone on these astonishingly volatile pockets of ground of of, of, of of regions where there are US bases being being placed. I think a lot of people were not surprised that there's a place such as Tower 22 on the Jordanian-Syrian border. But it just acted as a little bit of a reminder that the, the you know this is an area where the United, the United States has a pretty big presence, isn't it? Yeah. There are two things here. One is that there is great volatility in, in the Middle East and those cross-border militias definitely after the war in Iraq, uh, uh, mushroomed throughout the last uh, 30 years. This is one thing. The other is for the United States. Uh, despite talks about the United States withdrawing from the Middle East and, 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 and that the region can deal without the, and, and ensure stability without the United States, it's, a, it's an area of great interest for the United States. Hence, they, they have this basis. Stability in Jordan is important. To know exactly what the Russians and the Iranians are doing in Syria is important for, for, for the United States. So, yes, on a daily basis, we are not dealing with the, or with the, with the basis, or American bases there, but they have to do with intelligence, with counterinsurgency, with supporting uh, local, the local security forces. And as we could, as we can tell now, also this cross-border uh, militias look at it and said, "When there is an opportunity, they will hit it." Now the big question is whether a hey, they, they, they got lucky and and managing to hit the way that some people said happened in seven of October. Uh, with when Hamas attacked uh, Israel, the second thing also the the fact that some of the air defenses didn't didn't work in uh, on the base. The response by 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 Biden said, you know, it's not just the, this this militia; it's Tehran. We are not. We we need to deal with with Iran, and that's the question: What's going to happen next? So there's I'm going to be an escalation vis-a-vis Iran. Sorry so, for interrupting you. So these these militia are they pursuing local agendas, domestic agendas, wider political agendas? Uh, I mean, you you mentioned an Iran-backed militia, uh, you know, c- controlling a road in Iraq. There's in this article in the Financial Times that talks about you know th- yeah. just the. The, the complexity of the networks that are operating here. So it's between the very local and the and the big and the big and and the big picture of Iran's and Iran would like to see uh, would like to see the United States definitely out of the Middle East because it will help it uh, uh, to dominate uh, uh, the Middle East. Definitely, it will make it easier for vis-a-vis, for instance, uh, Israel vis-a-vis uh, the, the the Gulf. So in a way, by hurting American interest and maybe kind of create a debate in the United States. Why are we having this basis in, in, in the Middle East? So we see we offer so during an election year in the United States. If you listen to the Republicans, uh, go and hit straight Tehran. Forget about dealing with the militias. Uh, I think some in the administration, and I hope, will be more 
thoughtful about and more strategical about it and not to escalate it to a point that there is an all-out war with Iran. Um, finally, on the paper review, let's have a look at what's been happening on the outskirts of Paris. Uh, the pictures have been irresistible. Uh, the farmers knowing exactly what they need to do to get the press to turn up, which is to pick for, pitch for a hay bale across the main road out from uh, out from Paris to Charles de Gaulle Airport. Um, this is uh, a strong enoughly visual protest to obviously make all the papers, but also to make Emmanuel Macron sit up and pay attention. Yeah, and uh, there's his own political issues. And when you have 97 miles of, of traffic jams that makes probably ma- not only Paris and all the way out of Paris quite upset, Uh, this this has a political impact, but this is again I think what's interesting this is the the I will think about the difference between the French go on strike and the British the British way of of having this kind of industrial action stay at home. <coughs> is yes yeah, stay at home let's be polite about it not don't, don't disturb too much don't cause too much chaos and as a result not achieving much and 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 in France it's exactly the opposite let's create maximum chaos let's create the awareness and the fact that we are talking about it definitely in France they talk about it because there are real issues with agriculture it's very uh, you know agriculture society and and the, the, I think it's it, it brings back the need to discuss agriculture in 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 in, in modern times about you see how much the farmers for instance getting in return to the hard work compare the pressure there from the supermarkets, the subsidies for that, all these issues that all pushed to the side. And I think now the, the decision by the, the farmers in France, no, we want to put it on the table. Let's discuss. We are working very hard to make sure that you have all this beautiful food on the table we don't get a, get a great deal out of it. And it's a European Union problem as well. Well, that's what the farmers are believing yeah. because we have strikes in you know, Germany, we have strikes in, you know, we have blockades mm. in the likes of Romania as well. Um, and they're all saying that actually it's the European Union who needs to, which needs to step in with, with issues, especially when it comes to the import of Ukrainian grain. Yeah, and the things of the common agricultural uh, policy in, 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 in Europe. And some argue that there are too many subsidies and yet yeah, there are some distortion in the way that, that farmers grow their, their crops sometimes if, when there is no demand for it they're still paid for that is this in a free market right on the other hand we don't want that instead of the beautiful fields that where we grow crops and we move more and more into organic food healthier and consume less but better that it will instead turn into into big buildings and cities so in this kind of to find the balance between between that this is part of of the struggle of of the french farmers Jossi Meckelberg, thank you as ever for joining us in the studio you're listening to monocle radio it's emma nelson here with the globalist <laughs> a.m. in Kyiv, 7.15 a.m. here in London. Now, the annual corruption index, a yearly bellwether of the state of democracy, is out today. In fact, it was published about 15 minutes ago. As perhaps to be expected in a world of deep uncertainty and growing autocracy, strong democracies are doing well, authoritarian regimes faring considerably worse. To tell us more, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by François Valerian, who's chair of Transparency International, the producers of the index. He joins me on the line now from Berlin. A very good morning to you, François. 
Good morning. Uh, just explain to us then who's doing well, who's doing not so well. Well, uh, the countries that are doing well are the countries that uh, take corruption seriously and are fighting it effectively. And the countries that are doing less well, for various reasons, they are not fighting corruption adequately. And that's, the, that's one of the main differences between the countries that are uh, performing well and the others. So explain to us, you know, the index has just come out. Uh, who is doing well? Name, name our, you know, top three, four, five countries. Right. So um, the, um, the top countries are um, Denmark, Finland, New Zealand. Um, they are usually uh, top countries because those countries have um, the institutions, they have the laws, and those institutions and laws are adequately functioning against corruption. There are always rooms for improvement and our chapters, our national chapters in those countries, so our national organizations of Transparency International are working on improvements, but globally it is working. Other countries are, yes, doing less well. And those who are doing less well, is it, is it the usual list of the likes of Somalia, Syria, North Korea? Uh, uh, I think it's important to focus not on the bottom of the list, but on, uh, well, the, uh, the most countries which are in the middle of the list, because those countries that you've just mentioned, they have no state, there is uh, no functioning institution at all, they suffer from civil war, so it is not really meaningful to look at them at the bottom of the list because we know that nothing, absolutely nothing is functioning. But there are other countries which uh, over the past few years have declined in the index. I'm thinking, for example, of two Latin American countries, which are uh, Ecuador and Guatemala. And in those two countries, we have serious issues of capture of the judiciary system by organized crime and by corrupt people. And when the judiciary system is being captured, nothing can function against corruption. What about the countries which are either working incredibly hard to improve their image when it comes to, to corruption? I'm thinking of Ukraine at the moment, trying its absolute utmost to gain entry into the European Union and corruption needs to be absolutely minimised before that is going to happen. Or indeed the likes of Singapore, where there is a, a corruption trial underway at the moment and that has a stellar reputation. It's normally it's sort of one, it's normally in the top 10 at least, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, so... Both countries are interesting ones because you, you referred to um, recent corruption cases in Ukraine and in Singapore. So obviously the situations are very different. But in both cases, you have people who have been arrested and who are being investigated on corruption cases. And that is very important. That is what we are asking from countries, that they are acting against corruption. You know, you have two types of corruption scandals. You have the corruption scandals that we hear of when people are, arrest, are arrested by the judiciary system. And you have corruption scandals that come up when investigative journalists, NGOs are unveiling cases, but the judiciary system is not acting on them. And that's a big difference. It's a difference between a patient being treated and a patient not being treated.
What about countries which ordinarily one would imagine hold up incredibly well? Uh, looking at the likes of, I don't know, there's an enormous amount of discussion at the moment about the resources being made available to um, the press. Um, we've covered on Monocle Radio the fact that posts at the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, there are, there is, there are shrinking newsrooms across the world. And as a result one has to ask what effect does that have on the ability uh, for, for you know for, for corruption and democracy and transparency to thrive well it is a major issue it is uh, not only an issue for the press it's, it's 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 an immense issue for for the press and for media freedom it is also an issue for civil society freedoms that we have this shrinking civil society space now it is a considerable challenge within the countries but in our times with the digital tools that we have it is it is still possible to try to find out what's happening in a country i will give you an example we have a chapter in russia which is ti russia now it is now a chapter in exile they had to flee Russia because they were risking imprisonment in Russia. And they are still covering, they are still investigating in extremely difficult conditions. I, I fully agree with you, but it is still possible. But you're right, it is a real challenge. So we are really fighting for having a, a, a more free civic space and also more media freedom everywhere in the world. It is indispensable for the fight against corruption and abuse of power. François Valérien, who's chair of Transparency International, the producer of The Index. Thank you so much for joining us on the line from Berlin. You're listening to The Globalist live on Monocle Radio. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. in Paris, 7.22 here in London. Now, the US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, says that any response to the killing of three US service personnel during a drone attack on a military base could well be multi-leveled. It could come in stages and it could well be sustained over time. Mr Blinken accused the Iran-backed militia of launching the deadly attack on Tower 22, northeast of Jordan. But Iran has friends, proxies and allies, mainly in the militia form of the so-called axis of resistance, from Hezbollah in Lebanon to Houthi rebels mountaining attacks from Yemen on ships in the Red Sea. Yesterday, it shored up the support of neighbouring Pakistan as well. So to explore Iran's influence, I'm joined now by Aisha Siddiqui, who's a senior fellow department at the war, fellow in the Department of War Studies at King's College London. A very good morning to you, Aisha. Good morning. So let's just deal with this thing that's happened with Pakistan in the last, last 24, 48 hours. Last week... Um, Pakistan was believed, or, or pockets in Pakistan, were believed to be a potential foe with Iran launching missile strikes into Pakistan. Yesterday, we have the two foreign ministers agreeing to confront the menace of terrorism. What's happened? Well, this is what was expected. I mean, um, the attack from Iran was a bit unusual. Um, Iran can foment trouble for Pakistan, but um, the two countries also have, you know, pretty good relations. I'm not, um, you know, friendly. I mean, we call each other, Pakistan and Iran call each other 
Brazili countries. So that attack was unusual. And then Pakistan responded sharply by its own attack in in Iran. Now, since then, um, the effort was to kind of tone down um, the tension. And also Pakistan insisting because uh, in the last 24 or 48 hours, there has been an attack on Pakistani workers within Iranian Balochistan, and, and nine of them have died. Um, so Pakistan is insisting that um, Iran should help, you know, um, should actually take care and help um in curbing the militants, um, the the Baloch separatists that are on on the Iranian side of of the border, and Iran insisting that Pakistan should you know take care of militants that are attacking Iran. So you know there is there is this bilateral uh, issue which has been ongoing, but there was this upsurge in tension, and now they're making an effort to bring down the tension. Um- just explain to us a little bit about how they plan to do this, because we've been speaking quite extensively this morning on, on The Globalist about the fact that there are pockets of militia right across the Middle East, um, the axis of resistance, but they have domestic uh, priorities, they have local priorities, they have some political priorities. So from, from the top level, um, how do the Iranian and Pakistani governments actually join forces to tackle this? Well... Um, the thing is that both will kind of, um, you know, make sure that their militaries um, or the Revolutionary Guard in Iran and, and the Pakistani military or the Pakistan army uh, kind of beef up security. In fact, Pakistan has uh, increased radar outlook uh, on the Iranian border. I think it's important to note as well that uh, the intention of both Iran and Pakistan was not to um, kind of, you know, increase the, 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 the security problem for each other. Because if really, I mean, they become turn enemies and they increase each other's threat, they can really threaten each other. Because it's important to note that uh, Pakistan, besides Iran, one of the uh, one of the countries in the Middle East with the largest Shia population is Pakistan. Uh, there are also, um, and also the fact that uh, there are there are uh, Baloch insurgents, Baloch population, who are troubled by Pakistan's treatment uh, and 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 human rights atrocities, and you know who uh, and who are uh, fighting back. So Iran could always use them if it wanted to, you know, create internal security situation for Pakistan. On Iran's side, on the other hand, uh, the the Baloch, uh, Iranian Baloch, are actually predominantly Sunni, Sunni Diobandi, uh, who are protesting against mistreatment by the Shia regime. So both countries can create internal security situations for each other. What the Iranian foreign minister, by the way, has said on his visit to Islamabad, Pakistan, is that the attacks in Iran, which are happening on on the Iranian side of the border uh, with Pakistan, uh, have been carried out with the help of a third country. 
So I'm assuming that they're pointing a finger at United States and Israel uh, because there have been terrorist attacks, suicide attacks within Iran. Uh, and, 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 and that is what Iran uh, it was responding to, sending a signal to Pakistan a week ago when it attacked in Panjgur, uh, firing missiles and drones, that, you know, if in case Pakistan intended to be on the American side uh, or, or help America, then it shouldn't. So let's talk a little bit about this issue of, of what America does next. I, mean, I think all eyes are on Washington to see how it responds to the attack on Tower 22 on the Jordanian-Syrian border. And the the menu that the Pentagon is presenting uh, Joe Biden at the moment, nothing seems to be an ideal exit strategy or an, or an ideal response. Um, from the regional perspective, what would or what should be being done by the United States here to make sure that it is seen to retaliate effectively and successfully without creating a major tinderbox in the region? Well, it'll have to be, um, you know, um, something because attacks have been carried out before. I mean, Qasem Soleimani, General Qasem Soleimani of the Revolutionary Guards, I mean, uh, he was assassinated, uh, you know, uh, by the United States. So in Iraq, there is a lot of involvement of Iran in Iraq. In other parts of wherever there is more greater uh, Iranian presence, uh, especially in Iraq, uh, these are much more achievable targets. Uh, I think any attack on on the Pakistani side of the border or uh you know, in, in South Asia is going to then exacerbate the security situation. Because if Iran sees, now sees Pakistan as becoming a conduit, uh, you know, then then that is going to that is going to increase tension and and it'll you know the then tension is going to definitely going to spiral out of control. But the regions where it's already, uh, you know, conflict is there, um, you know, Iraq has been uh, fighting, then there is Syria. Uh, I think what the United States could do, the the two ways that the United States may uh, kind of respond. One is attacking directly inside Iran, which it can with the help of Iran. you know, Israel does that as well all the time. Uh, the other option is to attack Iranian uh, assets, uh, militant assets, which are spread all over the place. Uh, and Jeshul Adal, which is one of the militant groups, which Iran believes is working for uh for the United States could also be used. So assets could also be uh, activated to strike Iran. I think the choices are multiple, but that also means that conflict is going to increase. Uh, And especially neighboring countries where Iran can hit back, it will then hit back. 
Aisha Sadiqa, thank you so much as ever for joining us on Monocle Radio. The time here in London is 7.31. You're listening to The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. In a moment, we'll be hearing from Jeffrey Wright, star of satirical film American Fiction, nominated for five Oscars, and we'll explore the major issues of trust that Boeing is currently facing. But first, a quick look at the latest headlines. Israel has released a dossier claiming that up to 190 UN employees are allied to or employed by Hamas. The report alleges some staff took part in the abductions and killings carried out during Hamas' attack on Israel on October the 7th. Britain has demanded clarity over the whereabouts of a man of dual Russian-British nationality who appears to have disappeared from a Siberian prison. Vladimir Karamurza was convicted of treason after he criticised the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The UK Foreign Secretary says Moscow must urgently inform Mr Karamurza's lawyers of his whereabouts after discovering he's no longer in a penal colony in Omsk. The Australian Prime Minister has told neighbouring Papua New Guinea it is the security partner of choice after the Pacific Island nation said China was keen to seal a security and policing agreement. China approached Papua New Guinea last year with an offer to help its police force with training, equipment and surveillance technology. And the US has warned it will reinstate sanctions on Venezuela's oil sector if the Venezuelan government doesn't lift a ban on a leading opposition politician running for president later this year. The Biden administration says it will allow a suspension of energy sanctions to expire in April if Maria Corina Machado and other opposition figures aren't allowed to compete against President Nicolas Maduro. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. here in London. Now, three West African members of the regional bloc ECOWAS say they're withdrawing immediately from the group. Burkina Faso, Niger and Mali, all led by military governments, formed an alliance last year. Now they've accused ECOWAS of lacking support and imposing what they've described as inhuman coup-related sanctions. Well, joining me now is Tara O'Connor, founder and executive director of Africa Risk Consulting, a pan-African consulting company. Very good morning to you, Tara. Good morning. Uh, good to have you with us. Just explain to us a little bit about how we've got here because of ECOWAS's influence and why Burkina Faso, Niger and Mali decide that they don't want to be part of it anymore. Well, I think it's really um, in response to ECOWAS has actually threatened um, Niger in particular with military intervention to overturn and to reverse the military coup that took place in July last year. Uh, and to restore the democratic order. So um, that really put these three military-led countries, military juntas, onto the back foot. Um, And so they formed an alliance called the Alliance of Sahelian States in September as a kind of a defensive mechanism, or what they claim is a defensive mechanism. So it's, you know, this new alliance is a collective defense and mutual assistance agreement that will say, you know, an attack on one is an attack on all. And so each country, each signatory country will look to the defense of the other. And that then pits it absolutely uh, against ECOWAS, which is also a defense alliance, Uh, but it's a defense for a pro-democracy defense alliance. And so 
is structurally um, a- against any kind of military rule. Just explain a little bit about the purpose of ECOWAS. I mean, it's, it's nearly 50 years old and it, well, let's have a look. Burkina Faso, Mali and Niger are all founding members of them, um, of it, I should say. Um, well, it, you mentioned there it has an, a military aspect to it. It has yeah. an economic aspect to it. I mean, what is its purpose? Absolutely. I mean, it was a post-independence. I mean, this is the irony of the whole thing, is that it is a post-independence alliance that is meant to uh, be a founding defence economic, um, but very much a um, a pro-democracy and regional stability organisation. It's an economic and defence union. We have seen in the past um, that uh, ECOWAS has also got a defence function. We've seen um, uh, ECOWAS troops move into Liberia to stabilize at the end of the war there, uh, stabilize in the region in uh, in um, in Liberia, and also to in to actually put onto put into government the the Gambian leader who won elections and um, but and but the previous. Uh, uh, occupant of the post was not ready to go. So ECOWAS stepped in and ensured that the democratic transition took place there. But now it's a real challenge because um, here we have three military coups across the Sahel. We've had several military coups across the Sahel and then three countries moving out of ECOWAS to, um, to go on their own direction. How wise was it, do you believe, for ECOWAS to actually threaten military action uh, last year? I think that that was the moment that that you know Burkina Faso, Niger, and Mali all stepped up and said, "Hang on, enough is enough here. We're forming our own alliance." Yes, yes, they did, and I mean, really, it was um, you know it was perhaps an overreaction of the new head of ECOWAS, which was Bola Tinubu, who is the new who was at the time the newly elected president of Nigeria, again, the most powerful political and economic country in the region. But Nigeria's Bola Tinubu became president um, of Nigeria in May. In June, he was elected leader of ECOWAS for the year of 2024. And in July, he faced his first uh, real challenge when uh, when Niger staged its coup. So Dinu- uh, Bola Tinubu's immediate reaction was to threaten military intervention, uh, and which really set this uh, chain of events in motion. And Tinubu's own haste was very much criticised in the region and criticised at home because it, he actually overstepped his domestic political authority as president because he should have gone to the National Assembly in Nigeria for permission to suggest that uh, Nigeria go to, uh, you know, the ECOWAS uh, lead Nigerian troops into conflict, potential conflict, um, it to restore order in Niger. And he didn't have that. So it was not only a domestic blow to uh, his authority, but it was a blow to the to the region that they then have had to step back from that. Uh, ECOWAS has basically stepped back from that threat of military intervention. And it's been a bit of a humiliating climb down. And now a very great blow to Nigeria's leadership of ECOWAS that three of its founding members are departing. Tara O'Connor, thank you so much, as ever, for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. 
Boeing is in trouble again. The US airline giant regained trust of the aviation world following the 737 MAX tragedies less than five years ago when flawed engineering and bad communication led to two planes crashing and the loss of almost 350 lives. But last month, when a part of a plane fell off at 14,000 feet, causing a rapid loss in cabin pressure and ripping items from passengers' hands, questions are now being asked about where Boeing's priorities really do lie. Well, Gregory Scruggs is Monocle's Seattle correspondent and all-round Boeing expert. Expert. A very good evening. Good morning to you, Greg. Indeed. Good morning, Emma. Um, so let's just explain to us, just, just recap. Boeing was in serious trouble after the 737 MAX tragedy. Everybody lost faith in it. It had to rebuild trust enormously. And then this happens. Indeed. It, it is quite a, an astonishing turn of events. You would think that Boeing would be on its best behavior and double down its safety protocols uh, in the wake of the 737 MAX global fiasco. And then uh, you know, the doors quite literally fell off the cart, as it were, earlier this month, which has brought, if the scrutiny in the wake of the previous MAX scandal uh, was, was intense, it has certainly reached another level now with top uh, federal officials, uh, the senator from Washington State, for example, grilling Boeing CEO, launching congressional hearings, uh, the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, the U.S. Aviation Regulator, uh, w- which was accused of essentially having a revolving door with Boeing, a sort of too cozy relationship during the previous MAX incident, uh, really wanting to to strut its stuff and prove that it's an independent regulator. So yes, Boeing is in the hottest of hot seats. We are such a long way from the original reputation that Boeing enjoyed right up until the 1980s when it took pride in doing things properly. Uh, what's gone wrong here? Because this latest issue, when you said the, the the spare door came off. Someone in the factory had failed to properly fit the bolt securing the plug for that door. Yes. Um, and you know, what lapses and oversights led to that error, we will learn surely through the uh, certainly many pages long after action report to come. But the bigger picture here, and something that the the very strong Boeing community here in Seattle, the the engineers that you know make Boeing Boeing, have been saying for quite a long time, is that the company strayed from its original roots of engineering excellence when it acquired McDonnell Douglas, and that company's leaders took over Boeing's jobs, top jobs through this merger, and really reshaped the culture around cost control. There's this criticism that bean counters supplanted engineers. Uh, Shortly thereafter, uh, in the 2000s, the Boeing headquarters actually moved from Seattle to Chicago, uh, and then more recently, just a a year or two ago, to Northern Virginia, uh, likely due to proximity to the Pentagon, which really shows you where Boeing sees its potential uh, revenue streams, the strongest business in the defense sector, and civil aviation, uh, which is predominantly headquartered here in Washington State, and the the Boeing 737 made just down the road at a production facility in Renton, Washington, really feels like it has become something of a stepchild when it used to be the the star of the show. Now, when we look at the way that that Boeing's previous disasters and catastrophes occurred, when we had the 737 MAX, it lost... uh, pushing, what, $3 billion from from that, it lost trust. And it 
it, it very publicly had to go through an inquiry where it was where these these sort of cost cutting measures and safety um, shortcuts were exposed. How surprised is everybody that there seems to be perhaps suggestion that that lessons haven't been learned as much as they should have done? Oh, I think um, cons- considerable surprise. It's one of those fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Uh, really. Just a, 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 I mean, Boeing. Boeing is at the bottom of the barrel right now, full stop. And you know they are uh, lagging behind Airbus. They have delivered. They delivered 528 aircraft last year to Airbus's 735, um, and they're sitting on a ton of orders. I mean, the, the thing is, there are only two companies in the world that can produce airplanes. The full finished product that will take us where we want to go, uh, and Boeing is one of them. So. The sense that they are too big to fail is, I think, quite accurate. And the hope is that from this nadir, the only place to go is up and and that the the entire sort of regulatory and, for that matter, Wall Street, you know, shareholder side will have to recognize that something serious has to change at Boeing and they need to regain the safety culture and the engineering culture that made them so great once upon a time. Is Boeing really too big for fail in 2024? Well, I mean... Aviation analytics firm Cerium is predicting that the world is going to need another 45,000 new airliners through 2042. Um, you know, air travel and aviation remains popular. And while China has certainly made noises about uh, developing a Boeing or Airbus rival, uh, and there are smaller players out there like Embraer in Brazil, the demand is there and there aren't large enough companies that have the capacity to actually in the factories, I mean, the physical plants to produce an airplane is, is no small task, right? The, the the building that used to build the Boeing 747, the anniversary that Monocle covered just a year ago this week, uh, you know, is, is considered by some measures the largest building in the world. So you can't spin up a new aircraft manufacturer on a dime. Gregory Scruggs in Seattle, thank you so much for joining us on the line. You're listening to The Globalist live on Monocle Radio. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems, and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Fifteen forty-six in Kuala Lumpur, eight forty-six a.m. in Zurich, seven forty-six here in London. Time now for a look at the news out of Southeast Asia. I'm joined by Erin Cook, a Jakarta-based journalist and author of Dari Mulut Kimulut, a newsletter about Southeast Asia. A very warm welcome to Monaco Radio, Erin. Thank you so much for having me. Delighted to have you. Nice to hear, hear you join us. Um, now let's talk about Malaysia. The king has departed, but not before telling everybody that the monarchy needs more power. Yes, it's a. Uh... An interesting one. Agong Sultan Abdullah Ahmad Shah is his name, and today was his his last day serving. Um, he 
was appointed in 2019 after the former Agong abdicated for the first time in a long, long time amid rumours that he'd married a Russian beauty queen. So so this guy's come in with kind of a, a bit of a scandal behind him to begin with. Um, and then he kind of bucked off tradition and became very, very involved in Malaysia's domestic politics. Typically, the the ruler would be hands-off, kind of what we see in, in the Commonwealth. They'd be more of a, a showpiece than anything. But he's been very involved in the last few years, getting... Um, kind of trying to hatch out and bring peace to Malaysia's very instable domestic politics. This is the issue, isn't it? The, the, the greater the political instability in a country, the more the need for a leader. And this is where the monarch at the moment has said, well, actually, we could play a, a, a particularly strong part here, especially when it comes to international matters. Absolutely. He's he's very, well, he was, of course, very interested in um, getting Malaysia to be stable and pushing it forward, becoming a bit more of a mover and shaker throughout Southeast Asia and Asia more broadly. It'll be interesting to see what his successor, Sultan Ibrahim Sultan Oskander, does. So he's from Johor, closer to Singapore, um, and he is a very big deal business guy. So he'll probably be looking more towards uh political stability for for business interests more than you know the for the better of the country let's move on to a story about thailand um it's trying to relax censorship laws uh in order to make its soft power a little better felt yes so soft power is a huge deal to thailand uh thailand is very hyper aware and have been working for a really long time decades and decades on getting its soft power to be extraordinarily strong particularly compared to other countries in southeast asia you know everybody knows all about pad thai everybody's had a go at muay thai the the kickboxing or at least seen it (laughs) um so they're kind of fiddling around the edges to see what else can be changed or, or fixed up with the support of government in an effort to boost uh, creative industries and the tourism industry. But when we come to censorship rules, that gets a bit a bit sticky. So the monarchy uh, it will still remain off limits. There's sort of no room to, to talk the way about the monarchy that they do, for instance, in Malaysia. Um, so we won't be seeing anything interesting on that front, but expect a lot more sexy rom-coms to be coming out of Bangkok, I'd imagine. Um, and how much kickboxing, one must ask, is going to be involved in this one? I mean, sexy rom-coms coming out of Bangkok, what do they, they sound super fun, actually. What do they, what, what do they look and sound like? Thailand is the underrated king of rom-coms, I think. <laughs> they're they're excellent with it. Um, they're very big into the cute and coy, but I'd be interested to see what a sexier version looks like. Um, but on Muay Thai, that is becoming a really, really integral part of Thailand's push to uh, to fix up the tourism industry after the pandemic. So they're actually introducing a new visa um, for foreigners who are practitioners or want to become practitioners of the sport, they can come on into Thailand now for 90-day visa-free access. So maybe we'll see a bit of a crossover there, maybe a Muay Thai rom-com. 90 days of kickboxing rom-coms. I mean, what more could a human ask for with a bowl of pad thai at the end of it? Erin Cook, thank you so much for joining us on the line. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle Radio. Finally, it's Oscar season. Monocle's radio, Monocle Radio's senior correspondent Fernando Agusta Pacheco has spoken to one of the leading contenders in the Best Actor category, Jeffrey Wright, star of the satirical film American Fiction. It has five nominations in total, and Fernando began by asking about Jeffrey's relationship with the source material. I hadn't 
heard of the book and obviously hadn't read it. So my first introduction to the character and to the story was through Cord's script, which was just wonderfully drawn. I picked up the book and I read a bit of it, and it was clear that Cord had reshaped it in his own image. The book is set in Washington, D.C., which is my hometown, uh, and certain of the you know, catalyzing moments in the book had record had changed in considerable ways so the script was more useful to me i read the book later in the process there were certain things early that were helpful to me there there are these lovely moments in the book where monk steps away from the first narrative and muses on things like fly fishing and the intricacies of outsmarting a fish or woodworking and the smell of cut wood and things like that, which are really kind of these lovely meditations and quiet, like solitudinous moments that told me something about, one, the the peculiarities of his interests and also about his desire for a type of idealized isolation. But it was really Cord's script that I focused on more so, and also in some ways the book of my life, because there were these overlaps between Monk's circumstances and my own, particularly as relate to his family and his family in crisis and what it what it implies for him and the position that he is asked to take in the midst of all that. And one thing that I was perhaps even surprised but positively about the film, I was expecting, I mean, of course, it's also a satire, but incredibly emotional. It is the portrait of a family. There's, you know, there's grieving, there's your brother in the film who, who is gay and there's the, it, so it's quite interesting it's very much a portrait of a family I'm not, I'm not even saying a black family here as well and I think that's quite special I think some people might think it is a satire but there's also quite this heavy emotional element to it I think the satire in some ways is tragedy in disguise mm-hmm. yeah and yes the family for me was really or is the heart and soul of this film And it's also, in some ways, a kind of response to the absurdity of the satirical aspects of the film in that while he's leading this double life and he's fighting against the outside perceptions of who he should be or who he is, he's leading in real time a kind of ordinary life that is extraordinary even in its ordinariness in that we don't often see it portrayed on film with characters such as these. Yes, it's a family of black folks, but it's a family that's messy and beautiful and functional and dysfunctional and loving in spite of itself. There's a universality to it and there's a welcoming quality to it for Uh, audience members and our hope is that 
they find no matter what background or or country for that matter that they come from that they find something of themselves inside of it it seems that that's happening and it's um it's gratifying you know the the thing that we're told often by the powers that be in America you know who have the hold the purse strings for films like this is that our films films featuring black characters don't travel don't translate outside of the quote unquote black community but i think this film is a human story and i'm looking forward to getting it out there so we can we can prove too often naysayers wrong I think the film will travel very well, by the way. Uh, tell us about the cast. I must ask this. I mean, you worked with Leslie Egan as well, who played your mother. I mean, you were a massive fan of her. So how was it to play with her in the film? And, and of course, the other actors. I mean, you have Issa Rae and Sterling K. Brown, Tracy Ellie Ross. Excellent cast. And Erica Alexander and John Ortiz and Myra Lucretia Taylor, who plays Lorraine, the caretaker of the family, and who is so wonderful. But Leslie is an absolute joy to work with. She, like all of us, was so passionate about this story and about being in this film. She's an absolute legend, absolute pro as well. And for example, there's a scene that we filmed outside with her. And, you know, she's, if you see the film, you'll know. And she's it was very cold. We were near the ocean. Uh, we were in, you know, Massachusetts in the early fall, so it was it was not warm. <laughs> it was cold, and it was at night, and we had to do take after take. And I was concerned, you know, that she not get sick, but at the same time, we that we get the necessary shots for the scene. And I was calling up to Cord, our director because the crew was up on this seawall while we were, you know, we were by the water and I'd say, yes, she's okay. She can do another one. And I'd say, I'd say, Leslie, are you okay? She said, you, you know, yeah, oh, yeah, she's fine. Let's do another one. And then, you know, went on. And finally I said, Leslie, do you think we can do one more? She said, yeah, of course, we're making a movie. And it was just so telling of who she is, just an absolute pro and totally committed to what we were doing. It's just just wonderful to work with her. Wonderful. That was Jeffrey Wright talking to Fernanda Augusta Pacheco. And you can listen to the full interview with him on the Monocle Weekly. Just go to our website, monocle.com. That's all the time we have for today's programme. The warmest of thanks to all my guests and to the producers, Vincent McAvinney, Chris Chermack and Tom Webb. Our researcher was Neoma Ekwe and our studio manager, Christy O'Grady. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. The briefing is live at midday here in London and The Globalist is back at the same time tomorrow. I hope you can join me for that if you can. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>